I was raised to believe that the Bible defines good and evil for us within its pages. But when we stop and examine this idea using the Bible, we discover something else. In the Garden of Eden, there were two trees. A tree that would bring life to all who ate of its fruit, and a tree that brought death. And it was the second tree, the tree that resulted in death, that contained the knowledge of good and evil. Have we been deceived by the serpent who is trying to get us to eat of the second tree? Is the Bible really trying to define good and evil for us? Let's take a step back. Let's run an experiment. Instead of seeking to define good and evil, let's instead ask the question of the trees. Let's attempt to define life and death, but to do so, we must first seek it out. So join us as we Deresh Chai, as we seek life. Hey everybody, welcome to the Deresh Chai Experiment, the show where we treat the people that we read of in the Bible as though they're actually people. I'm Aaron Bishop, and I'm here with my beautiful wife, Rebecca. Hey everybody. And this week we are in Job chapter 3. Job chapter 3, it's rather short, and it has a very singular topic. It is a, a very guttural lament. Right. It is that soul who's in the midst of absolute and abject loss. Just uh, overwhelming depression that goes along with... For those of you who, who know anything about grief, there are... Uh, Sciences or psychology has identified five stages of grief. Yeah, and we see four of the five, but it seems to be missing one. Right. So the five stages of grief, for those who don't know, are number one, denial. Number two, depression. Number three is anger. Number four is bargaining. And number five is acceptance. Acceptance. And we see Job in this book, as Rebecca said, go through at least four of those. So denial, denial is easy to understand. It is the... This can't really be happening. Right. It's that complete disassociative type state where you really are numb. You just don't feel anything at all. It's, it's just... I'm going to wake up tomorrow and it's all going to have been a dream. Right. It's a, it's a state of shock, emotional shock, mental shock. And it can actually present in, in ways that shock presents. Absolutely. But it becomes a very disassociative. The depression, then, is that place where we read of Job this week. This entire chapter is Job in his depression. Just, woe is me. Everything is terrible. And Why was I even why, born? Yeah, why was I even born if I have to go through this? And... Uh, yeah, it, it, depression can be one of the longest stages of grief. Uh, it can take a long time for a person to go through depression and come out the other side. But when they come out the other side of it, then they're then angry. They're angry. Yeah, yeah, there's there's a real anger there. And, and we do catch sight of Job being angry. He lashes out at his friends. Why are you accusing me of this? Why are you saying that? He even kind of gets a little bit angry with God. Why have you done this to me? Why do I have to experience? What have I ever done to you? Come I, answer me. Right. Come Explain yourself. Yeah. Accuse me to my face so I can defend myself. Right. And then bargaining. Bargaining is one of those that can present in a lot of different ways. We see Job here bargaining with God in some ways. Bargaining often presents as, why does tomorrow even matter anymore? Because the thing that I was so attached to is gone. 
and my hope for the future is missing. And so bargaining often presents in making terrible, terrible decisions. This is the one night stand. This is the getting plastered drunk and doing something stupid. This is trying drugs for the first time. This is a person kind of going off the deep end. And unfortunately, completely unhinged. Yeah, yeah. Unfortunately, a lot of people who go through grief go through that stage where they make terrible decisions where they do stupid things that they know they shouldn't do, but they bargain it away. They excuse it away. I kind of like to call this stage uh, excuses for why it's okay to, to act in a bad way to everybody else. But it doesn't always present in making horrible decisions. No, it doesn't. Like, like you've mentioned, it could just mean I quit my job or I keep showing up late to work because I just don't care anymore. Yeah. I a general sense of apathy. It can be a sign of yeah, bargaining. Absolutely. And then the final stage is just acceptance. Getting to that point where you recognize that the thing you loved is gone. The pain will always be there. And this is just new normal at this point. A term that's been kind of thrown around recently. Way but, overused. <laughs> but there there always is a new normal, especially when someone goes through grief. There is that new normal on the other side that finally, once a person reaches that equilibrium. That's of, the right word, equilibrium. That is exactly what they need to eventually get to. Right. Where they can, it. the, the pain is going to be there. And anybody who tells you otherwise is lying to you. But that doesn't mean that it has to control your thoughts, control your every waking moment. But the truth of the matter is that grief is going to come in waves. Mm -hmm. And grief is going to be a part of you. And as a human race, grief will always be a part of us. Right. As individuals, we're going to grieve. We all grieve something. Right. And it is part of our life. Some part people, of our existence, yeah. right. Some people are going to grieve a lot more than others, but we're all going to experience it. And it is just a part of who we are. And right. it can make us either stronger and able to move forward, or we can get stuck in it. And that is something nobody really wants, is to get stuck in it. Right. So with that, Job chapter 3, it is just one chapter. It is just one topic. And it is a cry of lament. So let's go ahead and read it. And then let's uh, let's talk about it. And let's talk about this idea of depression and lament. And let's just kind of try and, and understand this emotion, this process, that if you live long enough, everyone goes through. Job chapter 3. After this, Job opened his mouth and cursed his day. Then Job answered and said, May the day I was born perish, and the night that said, A man is conceived. That day may it be darkness. May God above not regard it. May no light shine in it. May darkness and deep gloom reclaim it. May a cloud settle over it. May whatever blackens the day terrify it. That night may thick darkness seize it. May it not be included among the days of the year, nor be entered among the number of months. 
Indeed, may that night be barren. May no joyful shout enter it. May those who curse, curse the day. Those ready to awaken Leviathan. May its morning stars be darkened. May it hope for light, but have none. May it never see the eyelids of dawn. For it did not shut the doors of the womb on me, nor did it hide trouble from my eyes. Why did I not die at birth, and expire as I exited the womb? Why did the knees welcome me, and breasts that I might nurse? For now I would be lying down and quiet. I would be asleep and at rest with kings and counselors of the earth, who build for themselves places now desolate, with princes who had gold, who filled their houses with silver. Or why was I not hidden like a stillborn, like infants who never saw light? There the wicked cease from turmoil, and there the weary are at rest. Prisoners are at ease together. They do not hear the voice of the taskmaster. Small and great are there, and slave is free from his master. Why is light given to one who suffers, and life to the bitter of soul? To those who long for death, but it does not come, who dig for it more than for hidden treasures, who are filled with gladness and rejoice when finding the grave. Why is light given to a man whose way is hidden, and whom God has hedged in? For my sighing comes instead of my bread, and my groans pour out like water. For the thing I dreaded has come upon me, and what I feared has happened to me. I have no ease, no quietness. I have no rest, but turmoil came. Wow, that is a, a powerful... A lament's the only word I can think for it. It's a powerful lament. I want to kind of go back and touch on and comment on what Rebecca was talking about just before she read this idea that we as humans, we're all going to experience grief. Grief is, is part of the fall. And all too often, we see people who go through grief, and it ends up breaking their faith. An easy example is something like, oh, I don't know, was it God's Not Dead too? where they had to debate this atheist um, on the stage, and the atheist gets up there and he's like, I don't believe in God because my son died in a car accident. And what kind of good God's going to allow my son to die in a car accident? And uh, it's a caricature, but it's a caricature that's actually, frankly, somewhat accurate. Well, I mean, that's not – you're kind of being – silly right now about Mm -hmm. what the guy said but the truth of the matter is that that is probably one of the biggest things that shake a person's faith is the death of a loved one right especially a child right especially a child because this is an innocent child how dare he who what kind of a good god is that right it's easy to look in from the outside and kind of judge people for that um, I know that I have the tendency, like when someone goes through something like that to say, well, obviously you've made that person your God. And so losing them, suddenly you lose God. And Ugh. that's easy to say, but that is, that's not helpful in that's, any way. No, it's, and it's not necessarily at all accurate. Right. You know, it's just, there's this giant hole. In my life. Right. 
I didn't necessarily make that person my god. I just don't know how to function now that they're not here. Right. Or or I they I had a huge relationship with them and it's gone. Right. And God doesn't seem to be filling that hole with himself at the moment. Well, and, and even if just, he did, I'm not sure I want him to. And it's also just this massive paradigm shift. Right. I I knew who I was in that context with that person in my life. And now that person's not there. And I am so off kilter. And I don't even know where down is at this point. And I don't know how to function. And to to then slap an accusation on top of it, which we see Job's friends do like crazy, mm-hmm. is is literally adding insult to injury. Yeah. It's, it's literally smack in the face. throwing gasoline on the fire. It's not a benefit. It's just making the torment of that loss so much more. Right. So I'm actually glad that you pointed out that that's one of the areas that that you have in the past struggled because it is something that we all need to realize, Hey, when our friend is struggling with loss, don't go straight to judging. Well, right. And and like I said, it's, it's easy to go to that place and to have those thoughts of judgment until you've been there. Mm -hmm. And we've been there. In fact, that's kind of what's brought us to the point where we are today. It was it was the catalyst for what caused us to reexamine our lives and make a change. Yeah, absolutely. Um, when we got married, and we'll go ahead and tell the story just because it's a short chapter and we've got some time. And it's related. But when we got married, Rebecca had been diagnosed with Crohn's disease. That's something that had happened just a few years earlier. Uh, she had actually had a colon resection at that point. For those who don't know, that's where they actually open you up and cut out part of your intestines and then stitch them back together, splice it back together in some way. She'd had that happen. But I was in love and I was willing to do whatever it took to to be with her. And so we got married. And I was still very, very sick. Yes. Uh, For the first 10 years of our marriage, it was near constant doctors, hospitals, uh, for a good year and a half, two years at one point, it was the emergency room every two weeks and admitted to the hospital at least once a quarter. And that's on top of all of her doctor visits. That's on top of her infusions and the experimental, the experimental medication they had her on and yeah, everything else that was going on. It was a non- stop parade through the hospital it was a nightmare it was a living nightmare. it really was and it 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 got really frustrating but we were married we were still in love and we just made do with it and we had a couple kids and then uh, it was 2011 She went to the doctor to go see her doctor, as she always did. And while she was at the doctor, he basically said, "Um, I can't treat you anymore. We've tried everything there is. 
every drug there is, every treatment, everything that we know how to do, we've thrown it at your problem and you're not responding to the medication, the treatments, nothing. You're, you're just not, not responding. responding to any of it. Yeah. And because of that, because there's nothing else that we can do for you, we're going to send you home and I won't be seeing you again because I can't do anything for you. You're looking at dying in six months to a year. Pretty much. And when she came home and told me that, it shattered my world. Mine too. I mean, just to sit there and have a doctor tell you, basically, go home, go home and die. And die. Uh, it, I don't remember anything else from that day, pretty much. I remember... I don't remember even how I got home. Like, it, I was in such a state of shock or denial. You're right. <laughs> I don't even remember telling you. I don't. I just remember this void of, like, it was, it was like all of the air had been sucked out of my lungs and I did not even know how to function. Right. Yeah. It shattered my world, like, completely. I was raised Christian. I My dad was a pastor. I had always believed. We attended church. But I'd always thought God was good and that he would one day fix her. And I didn't know how to handle this thought that he wasn't, that he hadn't. That everything that's possible had been exhausted and all we had to look forward to was her death. Um, it Frankly, it, it shattered my faith to the point where I became agnostic for a time. And I began to basically re-examine everything that I thought I believed. What I had learned from my father, the what I had learned from... My family, what I had learned from church and what I had learned from the Bible and the way that the Bible had been presented to me for all those years, it didn't help. And it didn't it didn't fit and I began to see cracks in it. And so I can totally see where a person who's gone through actual loss, this was just the, the specter of loss in my life. Mm-hmm. I can see where a person could reach the point of losing their faith when it comes to suffering great loss. Especially when they get horrible, well-meaning... Friends. Friends. Right. I, the, no, the friends aren't inherently horrible, but their advice and their words are. That's what no, I'm trying to the get advice. At. The verses that say, you know, if you... If you pray believing God will give you what you want, that mm. not that's not what they say, but that is what people say they say. And and the the prosperity gospel which falls so horribly short and desperately uh and and definitely can shatter faith when you go through something hard or the but God, I asked you to heal them and you didn't. That kind of thing can mm -hmm. absolutely, like, I know I asked. And I know it wasn't just so that I could, you know, have have my way because I wanted them to live for you or whatever. You know what I'm saying? Like, 
so much bad information out there using scripture to then it it absolutely sets a person up to have their faith completely shattered right i myself never really doubted there was a god but i could not see how this could be part of a good story in my life and therefore i thought that he was not a good god that he was spiteful that he was mean that he was abusive and i couldn't see how i wanted to have him in my life anymore yeah it was a difficult time the specter of grief this almost pre-grief that we experienced it, it set off a chain of events as i said i began to suspect everything i began to doubt my politics. I began to doubt philosophy. I began to doubt what I knew about the world. I began to doubt uh, every aspect of what I had been taught. I had to go and re-examine it. And I couldn't trust what others had to say about the things anymore. Um, I had to examine the, the raw data, and I had to look at conflicting reports and weigh them out. And it served as that catalyst to bring me back to a point where I am now a full believer in the God of Israel. It's brought me to a point where I fully believe what the Bible has to say. I don't necessarily agree with how it's often steeped, how it's often presented to to people. Because... Uh, Especially in like prosperity circles, which my dad wasn't a prosperity teacher in any way, but you just get this idea that God wants what's best for you and God's only going to do what's, what's in your best interests. And when you start to see in your life that things aren't lining up for your best interests. That you can see. That, right. It's very difficult to line those things up. And but, I, for myself... I had to go through all of those stages of grief. I had mm-hmm. to go through all of the bargaining, mm-hmm. all of the denial and the anger. Oh my goodness, the anger. Yeah. But I did come to a place where I can genuinely thank God that I went through it. Not just acceptance, but grateful for it because I am a much better person having gone through it. And I have a a huge heart for others who are in that place or have gone through that or are in a, a place of, of health being in upheaval because I've been there. I know pain. I know pain like few people know pain. <laughs> and I can relate to people in a way that, in their pain, in a way that other people can't because they've never gone through it. Yeah. Yeah, well, today Rebecca is well. She hasn't had 
an experience with the pain that she had had before. How she got there is probably a story for another day. It definitely does need to be told, but this isn't necessarily, this isn't necessarily the, best the time place to, to, do that. to do it because we're dealing with the grief right now. We're dealing with the depression. We're dealing with the the that that dark dark place um, where there doesn't seem to be any light. There's no hope. Uh, the world is set against you. God Himself is set against you, and there's there's nothing left for you and that's where we find job in this chapter now there's some interesting little uh textual things going on in this chapter it is poetry one of the things we pointed to in the intro is that the speeches in this book it's poetry they they talk in hebrew poetry which is an indicator that these aren't their actual words but it's uh maybe a record capturing their thoughts, the the essence of what they said, and presenting it in a way that is that is meaningful. And in the first verse there's actually something that we usually don't see. In my translation it says, and after this Job Job opened his mouth and cursed the day of his birth. But yours says something slightly different. Mine says, After this Job opened his mouth and cursed his day. His day. Mm-hmm. He cursed his day. Where have we seen that before in Job? Yeah, in the first chapter. In the first chapter, where all of the his children had their feasts on their day. We can see here, this is birthday. Yeah, this is The birthday. day of his birth. He cursed his birthday. His day is his birthday. And so I think we can kind of infer that in chapter one, when it talks about his children celebrating their day. They're their celebrating their birthdays. Yeah. They're having a grand feast on their birthdays. I mean, textually, it makes sense. It, mm-hmm. it fits from one to the other. Um, there are some out there who take the uh, stance that we're not to celebrate birthdays. It becomes a time of pride for the person who is celebrating. We lift them up as a as an idol of sorts and honor and, and glorify them and not God. And, you know, some people definitely do take it to that extreme. Oh, I've, I've seen, you know, four-year-old birthday cakes that look like a wedding cake. You know, I've seen <laughs> ridiculous amounts of, of money spent on birthdays. And, and, yeah, that is, at that point, I think it is almost to a level of worship. Right. But to just say, you know what, I am so thankful you're here. I am so thankful you're in my life and I want to show you that I care about you and that I love you and I'm celebrating life. Right. I see absolutely no problem with that. I don't see oh, anywhere yeah, in scripture that has anything against that. Right. Um, some will point to, in fact, this chapter, cursing the day he was born. Some will point to Ecclesiastes, which we just went through, and point out the verse where it says, better is, better the, is the day, day, of, day of death than the day of one's birth. And then they'll see stuff like the meme on Facebook that says that the head of the satanic church says that birthdays are the number one holiday or right in, in Satanism. That it's the day of selfishness. It's the day of self-aggrandizement. And they'll say, oh, I'll see right there. Satanists do it. And the Bible says better is the day of death than the day of birth. So therefore, we just shouldn't do birthdays. Uh, but we see Job celebrating his children at least celebrating their birthdays 
and we see the day of Yeshua's birth being celebrated. Something that a lot of people who take this particular stance and who come into this walk of Torah, they, they kind of start to bash celebrating Yeshua's birthday. But the angels proclaimed, go and tell <laughs> he has been born. Yeah, that, that whole Luke 2 passage. Yeah, that's uh, a birthday celebration. the only place, mind you, because there's also another record of his birth and celebration. In Matthew the, Matthew, the Magi come and they give him presents. Right. But again, these are celebrating his birth. Right. So the idea that we shouldn't celebrate birthdays, it's... I get the heart behind it, but at the same time, I don't think it's it's necessary. It's okay for someone to choose to do that for themselves, but by no means do not impose that on others. Yeah, if you don't want to celebrate birthdays, that's fine. That's on you. There could be a million reasons why you don't want to celebrate your birthday. You could be turning 40 and say, nope, I'm not turning 40. What are you talking about? I'm still going to be 15. What do you yeah. mean? You know, Birthdays could care. have been a bad experience when you were, when you were younger. You could, you could have suffered something or been shamed or who knows what. And then and birthdays just suddenly become, well, never mind. I really don't care all that much anyway. There's a hundred reasons. But don't base it off of this verse, because that's clearly not what right. this is about. And don't don't try to make it biblical or scriptural, uh, because, frankly, it's not. Uh, the Bible points out good examples and evil examples of the same thing happening, which it does in anything that there's just kind of a, a gray area on. There are dangers, but it's not wrong. So, yeah, the, that little textual bit there at the end of verse 1 is kind of important, I think, because it helps us to decipher what it means the day of the children in chapter one. Yeah. So, uh, who was the person to swear at the youngest age? It's a joke I've told before. Joe, because he cursed the day he was born. Cursed the day he was born. (laughs) Ah, need a little bit of levity in there. Yeah, and this is it right here. Job cursed the day of his birth. And his curse is dark. His his lament. Let that day be darkness. Let no god from above seek for it, nor let light shine upon it. Uh, that word in verse four. It's actually mm-hmm. very interesting. The the word for God that's used there. Mm-hmm. Usually, when we see the word God in Hebrew, it's the word Elohim. In some few places it's just L. It gets shorted down. So it's not a so Elohim would be a plural type of it'd be like saying gods in, in English. And it often gets applied to the God of the universe, the God of Israel, a plural form of the word God. Every once in a while, the masculine form of the word God, L, is also applied to God. And then there are just a handful of times, and in Job is one of the greatest concentrations of it where a feminine version of the word God, Eloah, is used. And this is, in verse 4, is the first time that we see that in the book of Job. We already saw Elohim in chapter 2, verse 9, when his wife says, curse God and die. That's the word Elohim. Well, here in verse 3, it says, let not Eloah from above seek for it. And we'll see El used, and we'll see Eloah used again in in the next chapter, verse 9. Through the breath of Eloah, they perished by the spirit of his nostrils, they're consumed. But then in chapter 5, we'll find the masculine form of El, uh, singular. But as for me, verse five, chapter 5, verse 8, but as for me, I would seek El, and I would submit my case to Elohim. 
So Job is one of the very few books where we see all three cases of the word El being used in the Hebrew. And we only ever see Eloah used in poetry. Mm-hmm. It's never used in any kind of prose. El is sometimes used in prose sections. Eloah is reserved specifically for poetry. It's interesting. I don't. I don't know that we can like draw any doctrine from that or anything. Certainly like that. not. But, but at the same time, the day of birth is a very feminine, feminine. day. Right. It really, truly is. Right. It is inherently feminine. It is a woman's day. The, the, and in the ancient world, the man would have stood outside the tent with his friends while all the women were fully involved with bringing forth a child. It it was certainly a a, a feminine day. So the thought of that let that day be darkness, and then let not this feminine word for God look down upon look that down day. upon that day. It just kind of gives the it pulls into mind the feminine, if you will, traits of God that we see. Right. And and that is something that a lot of people miss. God is described as a mother who brings forth, who births Israel who nursed Israel. God is not always only ever masculine in the Bible. Now, his preferred pronoun <laughs> is he, him. But there are some cases where he does exhibit feminine traits. In fact, it's thought that the word El Shaddai uh, usually is translated as God Almighty. But the Hebrew word for breast is Shaddai. In fact, I think we see it in this chapter so in verse 12, we actually see this word, and it is the word shadim, shad being the word for breast in Hebrew. And so the idea of some people think that what El Shaddai means, it is the God who nourishes. He's the God who, who gives, who suckles, who, who comforts, who, who nurtures. nurtures and brings up and, and raises up into something that's, that's, um, fit to fit to live it's something that's fit to be released in the world on its own uh, and it, and it's actually really profound because if we turn to Exodus chapter 6 it says that Abraham didn't know me by Adonai but by El Shaddai and when you consider it from that point of view of the god who nourishes mm-hmm. the god who brings up well, what is Genesis but the nourishing of Israel, the the raising, the the nurturing, the right. the, the suckling, the, and then yeah, yeah, bringing to to a point. Well, not quite the weaning yet, but bringing to a point of where they could stand on their own, where they could at least walk as a mm-hmm. people, uh, and bringing them to that. the The word picture there, it actually just it makes it it makes really good sense, especially when. Well, there is some confusion on that verse in Exodus 6 because they obviously did know the Tetragrammaton. And it says that they didn't know me by my name, but they knew me by El Shaddai. And and it speaks more to God's character. They didn't know the character of yod heh vav They knew the character of El Shaddai, which which is really profound. And so we, we see these feminine characteristics of God throughout the Bible. And so we just need to recognize that, that yeah. it exists. Right. And that we, we're we not trying to 
gender God. Okay. God is not a man. God is not a woman. God is a spirit. But God chooses many times to show himself through different word pictures to help us understand him. Right. And yes, I'm using him because that is... That is his preferred pronoun. That is the (laughs) way that he is normally written about... And spoken of. And spoken of in scripture. That is the primary way that we understand him. But he presents himself in word pictures as a father, but as a, also as a mother, as a friend and a warrior and all of these word pictures that we can understand and understand his character through these. Right. So to see him portrayed in this particular case as feminine is very appropriate for the day of birth and that bringing forth life and that nurturing and loving and comforting aspect and job's having none of it job is absolutely distraught and does not even wish that god had seen him right Right, yeah, and throughout this chapter, it appears as though God is only ever referred to as Eloah. The entire chapter, we find it again in verse 23, Eloah, being used to uh, to refer to God. In my scanning, I'm not seeing any occurrence of Elohim in the entire chapter. So it, it appears as though he's referring to God in the feminine because because of that day of birth is feminine, because a lot of the things that are being said about breasts and wombs and bellies and birth and so on and so forth, it, it is very much a feminine thing to experience. Then uh, moving on, like in verse 8, he says, let those curse it who curse the day who are ready to stir up Leviathan. Okay, so he's got this word picture. Leviathan was this water monster, the great chaos dragon of the sea. Um uh, in many of the ancient uh, creation myths, creation it, it would re- it would include the the god of creation. Part of the creation story would be him defeating the chaos monster in the waters in order to bring forth land. In some in some, uh, he he made land out of the the Leviathan, or he would make people out of the Leviathan, or uh, there's just so, there's a lot of different uh, examples of that. And later in the book of Job, we're actually going to get a description of Leviathan. But we also see a creation story with Leviathan in it, in the Psalms. In the book of Psalms, that's right. That's right. And it's leveraged in the book of Psalms not to be a, a true creation story, but to be a commentary on the creation story of the nations around. It's similar to what Paul does when he goes into the Aeropolis in uh, in Greece and begins to preach about the God of Israel. Mm-hmm. He uses what they know and he puts our God on top of it. You may not know this, but he quotes at least four different Greek philosophers in that speech that he gives at the Aeropolis. And he uses what they're saying to point back to the God of Israel. 
Well, the psalm does the exact same thing, where it uses the imagery of Leviathan and the creation story of Leviathan from other mythologies in order to teach them about their God, about his God. It's Psalm 74, verse 14. You broke the head of Leviathan in pieces and you made him food for the people. So, yeah, it's just a way of of speaking to people who don't know the Bible. You can use their myths and say, you know, that great thing that you you say your God did? Well, it really wasn't your God. It was our God that did that. Mm -hmm. And you can use that to point people back to God. So it's using Leviathan here as... A death wish. Yeah, he's saying... Make like make Leviathan angry. Make him come eat me. Right. I've got this death wish. I'm going to go out on the waters. I'm going to find Leviathan and I'm going to poke him with a big stick and say, "Come at me, Leviathan. Take me out because I don't wish to live anymore." Uh, in modern terms, it would be a suicide by cop. Mm-hmm. You'd go. You poke the bear in the hopes that they'll take you out. Um. Right. So. Uh, in verse thirteen, it's interesting. He's, he changes, he kind of changes his tune a little bit, and he, he, or his, at least his trajectory. And he's like, if I had died, then I would be at peace. Right. Then I would be asleep. Right. I would be with the kings and counselors of the world. I would be with princes who have gold. And have filled their houses with silver. I would be at peace. I would be with these... These great men. Great men. These noble men. Right. And I don't think he's changing his tune. I think he's just saying every man dies. In death, they're all equal. You know? These great men, they go to death too. Why can't I go to death like them? I think that's kind of what he's getting at there. And we see this, I think, with the dichotomy of verse 17 and 18. There yeah. the wrong cease raging, and the weary are at rest, and the prisoner rests together, and they do not have hear the voice of the oppressor. Um, so there's this dichotomy going on of I'd be with the kings and those who are great. Because death is awesome, because even those who are oppressed and, and hurt and in prison and slaves, and they're at rest too. Everybody's at rest in death. Why can't I go to death? I want to be in death because here I am not at rest. I have no peace in my soul. I am tormented day and night. Yeah. And it's just painful. And then verse 20, it's that age-old question. Why does he give light to the sufferer and life to those who are bitter in soul? Those who are bitter, those whose soul is bitter. And those who long for death. Yeah. Why, why, God, do you insist on giving me life and breath? When you've brought me to this. And you know, there's the fact that he is still alive is actually a mercy to him, Mm. even though he can't appreciate it because God specifically said to Hasatan, the Satan, you can hurt his body, but you cannot kill him. I have something in, you know, in store for him. I have plans for him. I want him to survive this. And Job is actually upset that God hasn't allowed him to die. Yeah. And I have been there. Mm-hmm. I have asked God to just let me die. 
I know that feeling. I know others who have been there and asked God to let them die. And God pulled them through and they're much happier for it on the other side. But in the moment, I know that feeling. I know that anguish. But we got to remember, even in that moment, God's got a plan. Right. And I, and I think that we can kind of close there because that's, that is the thing that we need to grasp onto is even though Job goes through this, even though Jacob lost Rachel in childbirth, his loved wife, even though, uh, Lazarus died, even though all throughout scripture and all throughout our lives, we're going to lose people and it's going to hurt. It's going to be painful. We're going to lose things. We're going to lose our way of life. We're going to, we're going to lose something. We're going to have to deal with grief. You live long enough. You gonna have to deal with it Mm -hmm. and in the moment while you're there and it's all that's in your face you want to die even job wanted to die it's scripture that job wanted to die and yet if we flip forward 30 some chapters and we get to the end of the story we see that yeah he, he didn't die did his pain ever fully subside no no, he, he continued to mourn, but he also found joy again. He also found light and happiness and peace and faith again. He found he, life. He found life once again. After this place of death that he's wallowing here, there is life after death. And when it comes to depression and getting to this point of seeking death, there can be life again in the future. Give it time. Give it time. It hurts, but give it time. In the end, eventually, you'll find happiness again. You will. And it might be friends that come alongside you and give terrible advice that kind of help to pull you up out of it. (laughs) To be the ones, yeah, to be the ones to, to help you at least realize that there are other people who care about you, that the ones that you've lost, they can't be your entire world because you are loved and you have a purpose. And there is. As long as there's breath in your lungs, there is hope. hope. So with that, don't, don't forget that seeking life, especially in a place of depression and grief like this can seem like, the most obscure and pointless thing you could possibly do. And so backwards and upside down for what you feel like in the moment. But But in the end, it's the only thing that's really worthwhile. So seek life. In all that you do. Shalom. Thank you for tuning in to Derish Chai. If this content has blessed you and you would like more, please consider subscribing, liking, commenting, and sharing with others. To find out more about what we do and to support this ministry, head over to SeekLifeSC.com. That's SeekLifeSC.com. We'll see you again next time as we dare as we seek life. Shalom.